Hello, everyone. This is Food Talk's executive producer, Rob Perra. On today's episode, Danny interviews Dr. William Dietz, one of the world's leading experts on obesity. They discuss why effectively tackling obesity is taking so long and what we can do to slow the obesity epidemic. After that, Danny interviews Venkatesh Manar, chemical engineer and pioneering food technologist. They discuss the recently released 2020 Global Nutrition Report and nutritional inequities in our global food systems. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk Live. I am uh, very excited to talk to Dr. William Dietz, who is one of the world's leading experts on obesity today. Um, as I think a lot of folks know, obesity is a global crisis, and the recently released uh 2020 Global Nutrition Report says that it's also rooted in underlying inequities in the food system. Uh, Dr. Dietz is the director of the Summer M. Redstone Global Center for Prevention and Wellness at the Milken Institute School of Public Health at the George Washington University. He's also the director of the Stop Obesity Alliance within the center. That's a mouthful, Dr. Dietz. <laughs> that took a lot for me to get out. I'm so glad that you could be with me today. Thank you for joining us. No, I'm glad to be here. Thank you, Danny, for having me. So I, I kind of just want to dive right in. This, you know, this phrase that obesity is an epidemic. Can you talk about what that actually means, you know, that we have a, a crisis of, of overweight and obese people that are, is, you know, epidemic in proportion? Sure. Um, well, you know, in, in about the 1970s, um, the prevalence of obesity, the frequency of obesity was about 5% in the population. Now in adults, it's 42%. Is that globally? No, this is just U.S. Uh-huh. Globally, um, the prevalence is quite variable, but it, but obesity affects about 2 billion people around the world. Right. Uh, it's responsible for uh, roughly um, uh, 150,000, uh, 150 million deaths per year mm-hmm. uh, and 3% of the world's GDP. Wow. And so that from 5% in the 1970s to 42% of Americans who are obese today, what caused that? That's, you know, we're talking about 40, 45 years. Yeah. Um, everything caused it. Um, the, the way we live has completely changed. I, I'm, I'm, you've probably seen um, the, the picture of the century from 1954, which showed what an average family of four consumed mm-hmm. in the course of a year. Uh, and processed foods were nearly invisible. The only uh, really processed foods were cornflakes at that time. This was 1954. Right. Think of how our consumption has changed. The number of products in supermarkets is 40 to 50,000. Lots of those are processed foods. And we now know that processed foods, particularly ultra processed foods, which are high in salt, sugar and fat, are associated with uh, increased weight gain um, and, and obesity. Uh, And we've moved away from an unprocessed food diets. Fruits and vegetables are very expensive uh, for many communities. They're not available. Um, For example, in D.C., um, the two wards with the highest African-American population uh, uh, number 150,000 people. There are three supermarkets. Um, So people rely on corner stores and corner stores uh, sell products that have a long shelf life. They're ultra processed sodas and chips. Um, And, uh, and that's, um, you know, that, that's not a choice in those communities. This, this is deliberate. It is a, um, right. a function of, 
of structural racism. And we've designed these communities this way. Uh, and yet we tend to blame these populations um, for an increased prevalence of obesity, that it's their fault, uh, when in fact the fault is much more uh, deeply embedded. Yeah, we we um, talk a lot to Karen Washington of Rise and Root Farm, who talks a lot about this idea of, of food apartheid. Instead of calling these places food deserts, she calls it food apartheid because it is something imposed on these communities that they do not want. And and I think that's such, such a, a more accurate term in so many ways. You, you talked about... Um, processed and ultra-processed foods. And I'm wondering if we can unpack the ultra-processed part of that. What does that exactly mean? What does that mean to consumers? Well, let's start with unprocessed foods, which are foods in their natural state. And and, um, as defined by these investigators in Brazil, there are four stages. Uh, uh, And so minimally processed foods are foods which are um, intact, but may have salt uh, added, for example, Mm -hmm. something like that. And a little more processing might be um, chopped, um, like chopped spinach uh, or frozen spinach. But ultra-processed foods are foods which, um, in which the original ingredient is actually pretty low. Uh, and if you just think about these foods, these are the ones that are generally packaged in cellophane. They have a long shelf life. Um, they taste good because of their, they're high in salt, sugar, and fat. Uh, So they're quite desirable and they're inexpensive, which drives uh, consumption. And it's worth asking what makes these foods so cheap and widely available? Uh, Well, um, part of that comes all the way back to agricultural policy um, Mm -hmm. and the uh, kinds of subsidies that our commodity crops receive, uh, you know, wheat, corn uh, and uh, in particular. Um, these are part of a broader environmental problem that I, that I think you and, and your listeners know too well, that Sorry. what sustains these products uh, is federal subsidies. Um, another good example is beef. And um, beef consumption, we know, is related to obesity, cardiovascular disease, and colon cancer. Uh, and it also contributes substantially to climate change by virtue of its methane release. Um, and... Um, the what sustains beef consumption and and beef prices is the uh, the commodity crop subsidies that keep their fodder costs low. So uh, as as you well know, um, the the cost to the farmer uh, or the what what the ultimate percentage of the sale cost of beef to the farmer is is right. fairly small. Right. Every every body along the line uh, adds adds value, uh, and until the price is. Uh, you know, what, what we pay at the, at the supermarket. Sure. And these, these ultra processed foods, at least at the beginning of COVID, when people started hoarding food, a lot of uh, folks bought, you know, what we often call comfort food, but it's, you know, ultra processed. And we've talked a lot of in the show of how, um, you know, the, the sales of cookies, I'm, I won't name which one, have r- risen dramatically because of, of, of COVID-19. Do you think this is still happening? Do you think that the, the pandemic itself will increase the obesity epidemic? Well, that's a good question. So there, there, there are arguments that say yes and arguments that say no. Uh, certainly the reliance on ultra-processed foods is a contributor. Uh, the inactivity caused by the lockdown is another important contributor. On the other hand, we also know that there's rising food insecurity uh, in in many communities. And um, food insecurity has been associated with obesity. That seems paradoxical, um, but but I think one potential mechanism is that if you're food insecure, you're likely to um, 
increase your food intake so that you have more reserve to um, protect yourself against right. uh, hunger. And, and one of the, the concerns that I have about the, the pandemic is that we may begin to see undernutrition again in this country, which we virtually right. eliminated uh, as a result of, of food insecurity. Right. And it's worth thinking about why, why we are now food insecure. I mean, unemployment is certainly one of those factors. Right. But the whole food supply chain has been altered uh, as a result of COVID-19. And uh, I'm, I'm sure you know that the um, that along the food chain, the, the essential workers are the ones who are most vulnerable. Um, there was a piece in the uh, uh, weekly morbidity and mortality report from the CDC a couple of weeks ago um, that indicated that about 10% of workers in food processing plants, the uh, pork, chicken, uh, and, and beef, that uh, on average uh, across like 200,000 uh, people from, I can't remember, 230 plants, Sure. Ten percent had been uh, had contracted COVID nineteen, uh, and in some places it was up to twenty five percent of those plants. Incredible, yeah. So, so that's an inequity. Um, you know, eighty seven percent of those workers were people of color, African American or uh, Hispanic. And again, why is uh, why is beef cheap? Why is poultry cheap? It's because we don't pay those workers uh, their right. living wage. We don't give them time off uh, for sick leave. We don't, um, they're, they're forced to live in crowded conditions. So they incubate COVID. And that feeds back not only into the food supply chain, but into the uh, impact of COVID-19 on the prevalence of, of infections. The other thing that's worth saying uh, is that obesity and, and COVID-19 interact, that uh, the, the, um, consequences of COVID-19 infection in people with obesity are much graver than they are in people without obesity. And why is that? Why, why, because your body's already strained? Yeah, it's not clear. Um, yeah. Uh, that um, obesity um, certainly compromises respiratory function mm. uh, for, for a variety of reasons. Uh, uh, one is that you don't have as much diaphragmatic excursion and meaning when you take a deep breath, you have to push against abdominal fat. Um, secondly, uh, obesity is already an inflammatory condition. Um, and, uh, for example, fat tissue releases a, a variety of cytokines, which uh, are those uh, you've probably heard about the cytokine storm associated right. with COVID-19. So that's right. another, uh, another potential factor. The other group, that's vulnerable and, and with whom there's uh, overlap of COVID-19 infections is with um, people of color, both Hispanics and right. African-Americans. Uh, and uh, it's interesting to, there's a, a paper, um, I think out of New York, uh, could have been out of Atlanta, I can't remember, but um, that shows that that the, the mortality uh, of COVID-19 infections in African-Americans is increased. Um, but they're already sicker when they get to the hospital. If they go to the ICU, um, the rates of mortality uh, among African-Americans and whites are comparable, which suggests it's what, what's happening before they get into the emergency room or before they're hospitalized is what determines their course. And so now we're back again at the inequities of the, their living conditions that we're talking about, overcrowding, uh, poor housing, uh, stress from racism, uh, uh, poor food access to, uh, to healthy foods, 
uh, unemployment, all, all those stresses, um, which uh, not only I think account for the adverse course of COVID-19, but also the increased mortality um, uh, associated with uh being a person of color in the United States. Sure. You, I know the center works a lot on policy. How do we create policies though, that cover all of these things that you're, you're, you're talking about. If obesity is caused by inequity and inequality in our food system, in our economic system, in our housing systems, in our school systems, then what are your suggestions? I mean, it's such a big question, but like, how do we tackle this problem step-by-step then? Well, I think, I think we have to rebuild the U.S. Um, you know, the, the inequities that, that I'm talking about have been present for 500 years. They began with um, the white supremacy and, and the, uh, its effect on indigenous people. Right. Uh, and, you know, the, 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 the stage was set then uh, and 100 years later uh, with the arrival of the first African-American slaves, the, the, uh, the conditions just uh, proceeded apace. Um, so unless we begin to come face to face with the impact of white supremacy, I, I don't think we're going to succeed. Now, we can certainly do things on uh, more directly on what I would consider the margins. Yes, we have to improve medical care. Yes, we have to uh, improve uh, access to care. We have to improve uh, the dietary conditions and, and physical activity to make people healthier in those underserved communities. But until we come to these broader social determinants of health, I don't think we're going to succeed. We published a paper in The Lancet a year ago um, entitled The Global Syndemic of Obesity, Undernutrition, mm. and Climate Change. Uh, a syndemic, um, in, in this case, is a combination of two words, synergy and pandemics, as we call them. So obesity is a pandemic, undernutrition is a pandemic. We've labeled climate change a pandemic because I love that. Of it, yeah. of um, uh, so these um, pandemics interact in time and place and have an adverse effect on each other. Right. Uh, and uh, examples of these interactions, uh, we've already mentioned beef consumption, which causes colon cancer, cardiovascular disease, and obesity, but is also um, associated with methane production, which increases greenhouse gases. We know that greenhouse gases um, reduce crop yields and also change micronutrient content, um, and uh, therefore, it, you know, it's a it, it's a it's a it's a threefer basically, and and there are a variety of those interactions that we described in this Lancet article. But the point here <clears throat> is that we may need to take a broader perspective because people may not be able to or even choose to change. Uh, what they're eating or their physical activity levels for obesity or to prevent obesity. But they may be more engaged if they recognize that what they're doing Mm -hmm. uh, contributes to climate change. So that's the premise. The other advantage of thinking more broadly about obesity in this kind of um, uh, three pandemic, and now with COVID-19, we have a fourth pandemic. Uh, But it's worth thinking about... um, in, in terms of a syndemic, because that may suggest um, what we would call triple duty solutions, solutions mm-hmm. that would affect climate change, um, obesity, and undernutrition simultaneously. So coming back to that beef example, if, if demand for beef decreases, and we can decrease it in a variety of ways, like increasing the price 
to reflect the, the true costs of production. Uh, we reduce demand, we reduce beef production, which reduces methane, which uh, improves um, climate, um, and, and particularly uh, that would help protect against um, food insecurity and undernutrition in, in the developing world. Um, so again, we have a, a, a triple duty solution. Um, the triple duty solutions for COVID-19 uh, and obesity and undernutrition uh, get directly at these social determinants that we were talking about. So um, what if we, if, and, and that's complicated, I mean, it's what's called a wicked problem. Sure. Um, because that's, you know, if, if we, if we really do pay workers uh, on the food chain, on the essential uh, workers on the food delivery uh, chain, uh, a living wage, that's going to increase prices uh, at the other end. Um, on the other hand, uh, it's going to reduce the impact of COVID-19 because those workers are going to be more resistant to um, those infections. Um, and what sustains that, that pathway um, is, uh, is, is money. Um, you know, that, that the, uh, the, the, the producers, the, the people that run the poultry plants, the pork uh, producers, the meat producers are putting um, price or costs um, over people. Um, that, that, that the price is, is, uh, is determinedly low um, so that beef prices stay low and, and poultry and so forth. There's a lot that I want to dig into here. And, you know, you mentioned if we, if we I, I'm thrilled that you mentioned the, the idea of true cost accounting in the food system and, and accounting for the externalities, both positive and negative, that come from food production on the environment, on human health, on community, you know, health, those kinds of things. This idea of, you know, if we pay workers more, then prices will go up. I mean, we could pay corporate executives less and, and distribute that money more more equally. I, I also want to talk about the, the role of subsidies that were brought up before. When we have such powerful meat lobbies in the United States, for example, it's very hard to get rid of those kinds of subsidies that keep the system in place. So what kinds of policy change? How do we get, I mean, I'm asking a, a very broad question. So how do we get the money out of, out of what is essentially politics? Well... It begins with political will um, and, uh, you know, the kind of um, I don't know whether you can hear these sirens, but there's going to D.C. <laughs> I live in Baltimore. I get it. <laughs> so um, one of the major challenges is developing the political will to change demand. And I think that begins with individuals who begin who have to begin to change what they do for themselves and right. their families. Um, and from there, we can begin to. Uh, reach out and begin to change institutions and ultimately our, our cities. Um, so here, one of the things that, uh, that I've been interested in doing and, and trying to get underway uh, before COVID-19 was to engage students at George Washington University, as well as the other universities in the D.C. area around the issue of climate change and changing individual behavior and institutional behavior. So right. American University um, has now, um, uh, is, is now reducing its reliance on fossil fuels and, and uh, divesting from fossil fuel stocks. GW has just announced that it's going to do the same. And, and that's a good beginning. But right. um, as, as you well know, food waste accounts for 8% of greenhouse gases. So there's a lot more we could do in terms of reducing food waste First at the university, well, first in our houses and our homes. Secondly, 
in our institutions like the university, mm-hmm. thirdly in our cities like DC and, and DC already has uh, a very active um, strategy around uh, recycling food waste and, um, and composting it. It's fantastic. You know, I, I want to go back to this idea of, of corner stores and neighborhoods because I think it's an interesting one. Um, until the, the pandemic uh, occurred, COVID-19 occurred, I never shopped at, at my local bodega. I, I never, I would pass by it when, you know, walking elsewhere. Um, and I've been pleasantly surprised, you know, to go in and find fresh fruits and vegetables. They're, you know, nothing organic, but, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables, a lot of staples like beans, dried beans and other things, um, but also the, the junk food that you mentioned. And I think that there's a real opportunity with COVID-19 to bring those corner store owners into this conversation about because more people are relying on them than ever before because it's close. They, you know, they don't have to go to a big, big box store or or something like that. And I know there have been programs over the years in places like Philadelphia and elsewhere to change, you know, to help corner stores um, carry more fresh produce and that kind of thing. Do you think that's uh, part of the solution? Yes, absolutely. Um, Baltimore is notable for that. Um, And I think that's where some of the corner stores initiatives started. Um, There's also been a corner store initiative in D.C., um, so yes, and, and, um, the, uh, partnership for healthier America <clears throat> and full disclosure, I'm on their board, uh, has had a very active program involving convenience stores, um, right. which are often the sole source of, um, of food for many rural communities and, uh, has quite successfully increased the availability of fruits and vegetables in those stores. Um, and that's, you know, access is, is step one. Um, but, um, Pricing is another uh, and uh, helping people understand that um, they can they can uh, make and rely on foods other than than meat um, is is another important strategy. Uh, The other important strategy, which I think is worth emphasizing because it's it's becoming increasingly popular, um, is a sugary drink tax, uh, which. Uh, mm-hmm. As you know, has been implemented in about eight communities in the United States, and clearly right. reduced uh, purchasing of sugary drinks. And sugary right. drinks are the leading source of sugar in the diets of adolescents, um, and and some teenagers are actually consuming uh, about and, and young adults, for that matter, about 500 calories a day in in terms of sugary. Incredible, drinks. incredible. So that that's an important strategy. But the other. Uh, strategy policy related um, that has been shown to work in Chile, which has been one of the most progressive countries. I don't know whether you've uh, interviewed anybody from there, but in uh, uh, 2012, they passed a a law that began, uh, went into effect in 2016, and it included labels for salt, sugar, fat, and calories. Um, And they set standards for the high levels of those, uh, those nutrients. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what's happened in, in their preliminary assessment is that the decreases in, um, in, in um, purchasing, particularly of sugary drinks, has matched the uh, decrease in purchasing associated with taxes. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first real demonstration that, yeah. that a, a, a rigorous labeling uh, strategy can reduce consumption of products which are unhealthy. 
Yeah, it's so interesting. And I know there's been a lot of controversy around those taxes, but they, they do seem to work. Uh, Sarah Bleich from, from Harvard, uh, we interviewed her several months ago when we could still go out and about. And she, you know, she's been such a great advocate for those. There's another policy that's worth, two policies worth. Sure, please. At the federal level. Um, so uh, I, I think um, you're familiar with WIC, um, and uh, you probably know that in 2010, the, the WIC standards changed. Uh, for, right. for, uh, there was, to increase fruits and vegetables, they reduced the allocation of milk. They provided lower fat milk and less juice. And as a result, the prevalence of obesity among kids enrolled in WIC, two- to four-year-olds, decreased between 2010 and 2014. And a follow-up in 2016 showed that those changes had been sustained. Um, so that's an example of a federal policy that right. uh, has impacted obesity. Um, and what's interesting about the impact of that policy was that the, the declines in obesity were greater in, um, in kids, uh, non-white kids, basically, um, mm-hmm. in contrast to, to many other interventions. And there was just a paper this, well, last week in Health Affairs, uh, which looked at the impact of the Healthy Hunger Free Kids Act, um, which was, a, 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 I think, a, an extraordinary accomplishment of the Obama administration sure. because it increased the availability of, of whole grains, fruits, and vegetables. And although um, when you looked across the board at, uh, at changes in obesity in the population of kids, uh, the, the prevalence didn't change in the entire population but in the subset of kids who lived in poverty, there was a decline in the prevalence of obesity, wow. a significant decline. Um, and, and that's um, really interesting because that suggests when kids in poverty are provided a healthy diet, that their obesity, that the prevalence of obesity will be lower and um, brings us back to this conversation we were having about how do you, how do you change the availability right and costs of nutrition in low-income communities. Absolutely, absolutely. I, I do want to talk about this idea, you know, you, you you brought it up earlier about how poor people are blamed, you know, for consuming products that, you know, that are ultra-processed, et cetera. Um, there's a lot of stigmatization around being obese, especially in this country, I feel like. And, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are on, you know, we... I, I'm sure that you and the center want to help people who are experiencing obesity, but at the same time, they should not be shamed. They should, you know, uh, not feel bad about themselves because this is what they're experiencing. Right. So this begins with the language we use. Um, and I noticed that you mentioned um, uh, uh, obese people. Um, we should be talking about people with obesity in the same mm-hmm. way that we're talking about That's people right. with cancer or people with diabetes. Um, because when we talk about obese people, that's an identity. Yeah, when we that's talk right. about people with obesity, we're talking about people with a disease. And, and it separates the person from the disease. That's um, fantastic. And um, so it starts there. And, and I think when we talk about uh, an obese person, we tend to blame them for that problem. Whereas we talk about people with obesity, we're talking about people with a problem. Um, sure, that, sure has a variety of causes. So, so I think it begins there. Um, but, uh, you know, despite the fact that the prevalence of obesity has changed considerably, as you point out, it's still a very stigmatizing uh, condition. And uh, it's um, I, the, the stigmatizers or the people who 
are, are most likely to stigmatize uh, people with obesity mm-hmm. are family members or physicians. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got to change that conversation because it, 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 it does come to blaming and shaming. And, and we've worked hard in our center, and, and this is the Stop Obesity Alliance, um, to, to generate competencies for people who care for uh, people with right. obesity. Uh, and those competencies, in, competencies include a sensitivity to stigma and bias. Um, and there's a, a friend of mine uh, who has severe obesity and has had it since she was a child who had um, very severe hip pain uh, and went to several different providers, including an orthopedic surgeon who, without examining her, walked in, uh, said, you know what's wrong with you? You have, you have obesity pain. Well, it turned out she had really severe scoliosis, and that's why she oh my had gosh. Wow. Um, But that's a good example, I think, of how uh, providers really dismiss um, obesity. Uh, and, and even if, if they address it, they, their response is, well, you need to eat better and be more physically active. Well, right. almost everybody with obesity knows that. That's not the issue. The, the issue is how to do that and how to sustain it. Um, and uh, people with obesity and, and I think the general public focus on weight loss rather than weight maintenance and sustaining those. Sure, weight. Um, sure. We, we talked to um, uh, an expert on eating disorders uh, several weeks ago who talked about, uh, you know, again, the stigma t- attached to people with obesity. And one of the things that she mentioned is that not only, you know, do many doctors shame people who come in with, with eating disorders, but they also shame people about um you know, there's a, a tendency to to talk about these things in a way where you it, there's an easy fix, and I, I think that's what you've been alluding to. There, there is no easy fix to what we're talking about here. It, it's not just about losing weight or gaining weight. It's it's about figuring out how to to talk to people in, in, in different ways. And she also mentioned that often obesity is a genetic condition that, you know, some people's bodies are just built a different way. And I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about, you know, some people are predisposed to being, you know, uh, larger than, you know, maybe recommended by health professionals. How how do we deal with that, that part of it? Yeah. Um, Well, it's true that, that there's a genetic component to obesity. Um, But I think you put your finger on it when you said um, people are more prone to develop obesity. So, Genes don't cause obesity, mm-hmm. um, but they do set the stage for obesity because some people are, and, and we know this from twin studies, um, are much more susceptible to weight gain uh, when they're, they're given a, a diet in, of excess calories, or they're less active, uh, which is also probably genetically right. determined. Um, and obesity, uh, uh, the more we've learned, uh, the more complex obesity has become there. Um, and um, part of what happens with people with obesity is uh, a synergistic adjustment um, that tends to maintain them at their increased weight. So they, you know, the, the body uh, when, uh, and this is historically imprinted, when you begin to lose weight, the body says, uh-oh, there's a famine coming. We've got sure. to conserve energy. Uh, and there are good studies which show that energy expenditure um, meaning the energy you're using on a daily basis tends to go down uh, when you're losing weight. And 
may stay at that lower level, which is why weight gain, weight regain um, is so easy to, to achieve after a diet. Well, and, and I also learned during that conversation around eating disorders that there are many insurance companies, whether we're talking about obese folks or people who are, you know, underweight, don't want to cover the, these, these problems. How can we get insurance companies to take a more active role in covering the health costs associated with obesity and, you know, help people with obesity get the resources and, you know, the advice and the recommendations that they need? Right. Um, so part of that begins with, with the training of healthcare providers. Um, right. This is not a subject that's uh, addressed very widely in medical schools. Uh, and GW, uh, I think, is uh, one of the exceptions where there are three days spent on obesity, including a community experience uh, yeah. and trying to uh, affect policy. Uh, so it begins with training. Um, but reimbursement is also a, a critical piece. And we published a study uh, two years ago, showing that there were widely divergent benefits uh, in state employee health plans and state Medicaid programs, right. and often the two were contradictory. Um, and um, you know, one one state, in order to qualify for bariatric surgery uh, for surgery to correct obesity, sure. um, required them to lose uh, about fifteen kilograms before they were eligible for surgery, which. You know, if somebody can lose 15 kilograms, they don't probably need surgery as, as uh, right. necessarily. Or uh, another state uh, had only one visit uh, allowed for uh, behavioral counseling. I mean, that's crazy. Um, states and, and insurance plans ought to have uh, about a, a four-component type of uh, benefit. One is assessment, um, followed by intensive behavioral therapy around uh, physical activity and uh, and nutrition, um, and um, a staged approach that would then be followed by pharmacotherapy, by drug therapy, and we now have some very effective drugs, followed by bariatric surgery uh, in case in in those cases which are severe and resistant to those other types of therapy. The other element, though, uh, on the medical side that we've worked we're working very hard to fix um, is that. What a person does about their obesity in an encounter with a health professional needs to be decided jointly. It, right. It's a shared decision. Right. And, um, it rarely is, uh, you know, because providers are in a hurry. They say what I said before, you need to lose weight. You need to be more active. You need to eat more rather than exploring with the, the patient what they think they can do. Uh, and, what the timetable for those changes might be. Well, what you're basically calling for is a revolution in our healthcare system where doctors actually have enough time to, you know, spend with patients and, and, and care for them. And I think that's, you know, uh, with our health system so stressed right now because of COVID-19, I think these problems are, are probably getting worse instead of better. What do you hope happens over the, the, the next decade, Dr. Dietz, around obesity research, around public policy, uh, and around awareness? Well, we're not going to treat our way out of uh, this um, obesity with 42% of adults and 19% of kids having obesity and even greater numbers having severe obesity. So, the, for example, I calculated a while ago um, that if you took the number of people with severe obesity in the population uh, and matched that with 
internists, uh, OBGYN docs, and uh, family doctors, uh, there were about 90 people with severe obesity per provider. Mm-hmm. On the pediatric side, um, there were about 50 uh, patients with 50 kids with severe obesity wow. per provider. So we can't treat our way out of this. We've got to focus on policy. That doesn't mean we, we don't provide the best treatment possible for people with obesity, but we've got to come up with, with policy solutions. And there's some helpful things, I, I think, coming from um, the COVID-19 experience. One is um, the recognition that the, um, the social determinants of obesity are contributing to the severity of infections in people of color and, um, and people with obesity. Um, and there's, uh, an, an, I think, at least I'm seeing, and maybe it's because I want to see it, uh, a growing recognition that unless we address those determinants, we're not going to succeed. Yeah. More broadly, um, that there's um, more attention, I think, being paid to the need to control obesity um, as, a, as a way of diminishing the impact of COVID-19 infections. Um, and, and then the third development is um, there's increasing pushback um, on the part of physicians about how little time they have to spend with patients. Right. That system needs to be changed um, uh, because... Physicians are burning out uh, from that. For and sure. spending a lot of time, uh, you know, entering stuff in the medical record um, rather than talking to patients about the changes. That they <laughs> right. right. Now, that, that's all good advice. If folks want more information about the Redstone Global Center for Prevention and Wellness, where should they go? Well, so they can go to our website and on our website, um, they'll see not only information about the Redstone Center, but they'll also be able to click on the Stop Obesity Alliance and find their way to a lot of resources. Um, and we focus very heavily on uh, figuring out and, and, and promoting what providers can do for obesity. Uh, so That's there are great. a lot of, um, and uh, it's mostly, so that work is mostly aimed at providers, not the general public. Um, but other, uh, you'll see also on that site, I think that, uh, on the Redstone site that we're actively involved with DC around trying to get sugary drink taxes passed for the city. Fantastic. So it's redstone.publichealth.gw.edu, kind of complicated uh, URL, but we will have it available at foodtank.com and on our social media. Dr. Dietz, I've learned so much today. People with obesity is that now a term that I and, and Food Tank will be using instead of obese people. So thank you for schooling me. I really do appreciate that. That's We, we, we want to be more aware of, of, of these things, and I think that's really helpful. So thank you so much for joining me today. Um, wait, we have a question. So Alicia wants to know, how do people improve their diets within the context of their real lives? Great question, uh, Alicia, Alicia. Sorry. Well, as, as, uh, as I indicated, this is not an easy thing to do. Um, yeah. Access is one. Um, changing, uh, you know, income and, and the ability to pay for uh, the unprocessed foods is another. Right. But being aware of the um, impact of ultra-processed foods, I think, will make a difference. Um, so the more, uh, the, the kinds of things that, that um, mediate satiety, that is a, a sense of fullness, are is uh, the most important thing is volume. Um, so um, satiety or how full you feel is regulated by volume. So fruits and vegetables are very filling. Right. So are whole grains. Um, and so is a good source uh, of lean protein. So um, 
the diet of, of choice, uh, and you can find this online, is um, a Mediterranean diet is probably the one of the most healthful diets that's not only good for you, but good for the planet. Absolutely. What are you going to eat tonight, Dr. Dietz? Uh, I'm going to have some chicken that we, some huli huli chicken that we, uh, <laughs> this is a Hawaiian chicken uh, um, and salad. I mean, that's basically, we have a, a source of protein and salad uh, almost every night. That's great. Thank you again for joining me. I think this has been really uh, a fruitful discussion. Um, uh, this episode will also appear on our podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg, and I hope folks will join me on our next episode when I'll be talking uh, to farmer Paul Willis of Nyman Ranch Pork Company. Thanks so much, Dr. Dietz. Please stay well. My pleasure. Stay- you too. Take care. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Food Talk Live. Uh, I am so excited to talk to Venkatesh Manar today, who is a technology leader and pioneer of nutrition initiatives focused on the world's most vulnerable citizens. He has developed cutting-edge technologies to enhance the nutritional quality of foods. He was also the co-chair of the 2020 Global Nutrition Report, which was released earlier this year. He also serves as special advisor on nutrition to the Tata Trust as the and the Tata Cornell Agriculture and Nutrition Initiative. Before taking on these roles, he was the president of the Micronutrient Initiative uh, for Canada for almost 20 years. And today he's joining us from Toronto, which is my favorite Canadian city, Um, the best food in in all of Canada, I feel like. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks very much, Daniel. It's a real pleasure to talk to you today. So um, I've been asking the same first question um, on my podcast for for a long time now, and it's it's a way to get to know folks. And it's what is your favorite food memory? You've been all over the world. You have, you know, I'm sure some exciting dishes that you've either cooked or had cooked for you. Um, What's your favorite food memory? Okay, Uh, let me think. Um, I have a memory related to food. It's not it's not a dish, but I'll I'll just tell you the story anyway. Sure. (laughs) Um, because it relates ultimately to food and what people can uh, access. Uh, As you know, Danielle, I've been working for several decades uh, to ensure that uh, people get all the essential nutrients that they need uh, to survive and thrive. And uh, uh, in this process, my work has taken me to remote parts of the world. And uh, what I saw and heard has very much shaped my thinking and belief that we live in this wonderful, diverse and complex planet but we have a huge responsibility to uh, preserve it. And uh, that's what we are all uh, focusing on. Yeah. And one of my trips in recent years uh, took me to the Darfur region in Sudan. As you know, it's not exactly a very hospitable place. It's on the sure. fringe of the Sahara Desert. Uh, it's got a lot of instability and uh, uh, refugees and uh, insecurity. And uh, I was working on a project there to trace salt production and distribution routes that ensure that people everywhere get uh, the essential uh, constituent of diets, that is salt. Uh, And uh, so as we were driving there on mud tracks, I saw at a distance a man virtually in rags. And uh, he was uh, running, carrying a a slab of rock salt on his head. And um, I asked my guides to stop him and... uh, uh, check he would talk to us uh, but as we neared him he, he he got frightened and he started running and we, uh, we caught up with him and we reassured him that we're not uh, tax officials or uh, decoits 
And so, uh, then uh, yeah, through multiple layers of interpreters, I finally asked him a few questions and he uh, uh, agreed reluctantly. But what he told me blew me away. He said that once a month, he would set out from his village on foot across the desert to a distant hill, about a week-long journey, where there were deposits of rock salt. Uh, he would cut a slab of this salt and then carry it back to his village over another week. So total mm -hmm. uh, two weeks of dummy time. And I was struck by uh, the effort that he was taking and the hardship, you know, to do this whole journey for 14 days just to get enough salt for himself and for his village. And wow. uh, it, it really, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, set me thinking on what people uh, have to do in terms of the challenges in getting, uh, you know, whatever they need for their daily diets uh, and to, uh, to to make sure that it's yeah. safe and healthy. And um, it's so important that we continue to work on this and make sure that everybody is uh, privileged and, uh, you know, secure to uh, get all of this without so much of hardship. Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't have a story similar to that one, but I have seen so many people all over the world who, you know, they, they wouldn't tell you they were struggling, but they are struggling to get those daily nutrients that they need. And you, you use the term essential nutrients. And I think for a lot of our viewers and our listeners that, you know, they, they hear that term a lot, essential nutrients, um, but they are, you know, they, most of them live in, in the global north. They, they, they don't really have a, you know, they don't think about the deficiencies and kind of essential nutrients. Can you describe what, when, when, we're, when we're talking about essential nutrients, what are those? <clears throat> yes. Um, uh, you know, as you know, the, the body needs a range of nutrients, uh, macronutrients, quantities in larger quantities, and micronutrients. And uh, the macronutrients are obviously the carbohydrates, the fats, the protein, uh, that we need in, as part of our daily diet. And the micronutrients are needed in much smaller quantities. These are essentially vitamins and minerals. Uh, mm -hmm. They're required in uh, micro quantities every day, but the body needs them. They're essential for the body. For example, you take something like iodine. Uh, the body needs about uh, a teaspoon of iodine for a whole lifetime of 80 years. But it needs that small quantity of a uh, few micrograms of iodine every day. To make sure right. that the thyroid functions well, that uh, all the endocrine systems function well. So all of these nutrients, iron is another critical nutrient or vitamin A. Um, uh, all of these are important for immune systems. We all heard about vitamin D more recently, zinc, vitamin C. All of these are micronutrients that the body needs. And ideally, we should get them through the foods that we eat, through a good diet. Right. Uh, right. And uh, where uh, you know there are people who don't get these through... Uh, poor diets or uh, through ec for economic reasons, uh, they suffer from a whole range of uh, maladies. Absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned the man you saw carrying the rock salt. Rock salt does not contain an essential uh, micronutrient of iodine, right? And That's so what happens? And so when, when folks don't get enough iodine, they often get goiters in their throats, right? And that's a... And, and it's, much know, more than that. It's uh, uh, beyond the goiter now. Uh, there is much more uh, evidence that it leads to uh, severe mental retardation in children. If if a child is born to an iodine deficient mother, uh, then the child, uh, the brain development of the child is compromised, and that uh, it's very hard to correct it later in life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you you recently worked on this 2020 Global Nutri Nutrition Report, and a major takeaway from it 
is the recognition that there are great inequities in our current food system that need to be addressed to really tackle malnutrition in all its forms. What can you, I mean, this is an issue that comes up over and over for us, especially at Food Tank, the lack of equality in the food system. And I'm wondering if you can talk about, you know, what that translates to on the ground for, you know, people who are living in the global South. Right. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the report uh, over the years, for the past five or six years, the global report has been tracking uh, nutrition status and uh, uh, prevalence across the world. But this year, for the first time, uh, the report focused on the theme of equity. And all of this was before the COVID crisis. Uh, it was just fortuitous that we chose uh, equity as the theme for this report. And we did more analysis to look at what are the variances in the occurrence of many of these nutritional problems. And the results were quite uh, uh, surprising. Uh, uh, there are huge global and uh, national patterns uh, that hide uh, significant inequalities within populations of uh, countries. And uh, obviously, the most vulnerable groups are affected the most. Let me give you an example. For example, sure. if you have uh, underweight, uh, now, underweight is a persisting problem in, in the poorest of countries, and it is almost 10 times higher in poor countries compared to wealthier countries. Uh, on the flip side, you have overweight and obesity that are five times more prevalent in the wealthier countries compared to the poorer countries. So you can see already the differences. Uh, and even within communities, we found that uh, something like wasting in children under five can be up to five times or 10 times higher, even within the same country, you could have a mm -hmm. huge variation. Uh, we observed that there was a four, 400% uh, uh, variation in stunting uh, and 300% variation in overweight or obesity. So all of yeah. these shows that if you look at national averages, even if they're okay, you need to really uh, drill down to see what kind of uh, variation you get and address those who are really at the lower end of the, uh, the whole chain. Absolutely. I find this paradox of hunger and obesity very interesting because and right now, at least for right now, there are more overweight and obese people in the world than there are underweight and malnourished. And that will likely change or could change because of COVID-19. There will likely be, a, a, you know, the, the UN Food and Agriculture Organization has, has predicted a doubling of, of hungry people around the globe. But this paradox of where you can have hungry people and, you know, obese people who are often themselves, uh, you know, suffering from micronutrient deficiencies because they're not eating proper diets. I just think it's so interesting. And, you know, the it, obesity and, and overweight are, are cropping up more and more in, in, in the global south in places like uh, Mexico and Brazil in places like India, et cetera. How do you reconcile that? You know, how do you reconcile that kind of that kind of paradox? Uh, Daniel, that is really shocking. And I, I have myself been in parts of India where I've seen in one household uh, an undernourished, uh, malnourished mother. And she had one of her children was obese, was really overweight. Yeah. Uh, and she had another daughter who was, again, extremely anemic. So you can see the patterns even within the same household. And uh, yeah. uh, uh, obviously, the problem is much 
more uh, um, serious when you go across a community or across a country. Uh, so it's it's really two sides of the same coin. And uh, as we move forward, the term malnutrition, which earlier used to always mean undernutrition, right. we now have to change our mindset to say that this could also uh, mean overnutrition or uh, 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 overweight and obesity. They're all part of the same coin. And obviously, when we talk about food systems, uh, you have to be addressing both at the same time. And this is often the result, and correct me if I'm wrong, of, of ultra-processed foods that are very cheap to, to buy, but, you know, they're made of corn or wheat or soy and high in sodium and or sugar, you know, these are just, you know, they're, they're very easy for people uh, to, to purchase, but they're not very nutritious. Absolutely, uh, Daniel. Uh, and I have myself seen this in the developing world over the past uh, 20 years. Uh, uh, there was rarely a supermarket, uh, you know, in, uh, in a country like India or in parts of Africa uh, in the 90s. And today you go, every uh, other street has a small supermarket and all of them contain a whole range of processed foods. And as you as you call them, ultra processed foods, sure. uh, they are cheap, uh, they are intensively marketed and their sales are uh, uh, exponentially growing in the lower income countries. And that's really a matter of concern. And businesses, we know there's evidence to show that businesses target, uh, uh, target their advertising According to wealth, for example, you'll see advertising and hoardings for cheap and processed food and uh, uh, cola drinks and sugar drinks more more in low income neighborhoods. So obviously we're driving it down the wrong way. And uh, uh, that's going to lead to a totally new problem in the developing world of obesity and where where they're already trying to battle undernutrition. They're now faced with this uh, additional problem as well. Absolutely. It's one sort of uh, an additional shock. You know, they're they're already facing a range of health problems, including malnutrition. Now, COVID-19, we found, you know, with at least some of the evidence shows from COVID-19 that overweight and obese uh, uh, populations suffer more from COVID-19 than than, um, you know, people who are of regular weight. So there's there's a lot that needs to be done to really address this. Go ahead. Uh, another uh, uh, dimension uh, is a broader issue and that relates to government policies in many countries I've seen. Uh, government policies favor the, the uh, growth of staple grains like rice or wheat or maize and all of these are good. They, serve, they provide uh, essential carbohydrates and keep people from uh, going hungry but there's not enough of a focus on uh, the healthier uh, foods like uh, fruits, vegetables, nuts. Right. Uh, so we really need that balance. And uh, only then do we get a good diet. And uh, this really uh, has to be, uh, you know, pushed into government policies and programs to encourage uh, both so that people get access to a whole range of foods as well. Absolutely. I think governments have a huge responsibility to create more equitable food systems. And, you know, the, you, you mentioned how uh, foods, you know, ultra processed foods were being marketed in the global south to, you know, lower income populations, underserved populations. The same thing happens in countries like the U.S. where there, you know, there's not a lot of healthy food available in, in poor communities, communities of color. And, you know, the government can do a lot to address that. But they haven't. And, and these, this is a problem for governments all over the world. Correct. Um, in, in an article that you wrote um, last year, you were frustrated that world leaders rarely discuss nutrition as, as a policy 
priority. Why don't they focus on nutrition? Uh, the, the interesting thing about nutrition is uh, it is uh, everybody's a problem, but uh, nobody's baby kind of thing. In the sense, <laughs> right. uh, uh, even in a, in any country, and this is true, uh, you, you don't have a ministry for nutrition, right? You have a ministry for health. You have a ministry for food. Uh, uh, so you have ministry for education. Uh, so nutrition is something that cuts across all of these uh, different sectors. And uh, 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 while you might link it to health and say it really has to come under health, uh, uh, we know that it has a huge linkage with food. And so what is the uh, responsibility of the food uh, uh, department or the food ministry to uh, address nutrition? And uh, that, that uh, this falling between the cracks is uh, what uh, is, uh, uh, for example, if you go to a food ministry, typically uh, they'll be talking about agriculture, they'll talk about crops and increased food production, but they rarely discuss nutrition. Uh, they rarely make decisions based on, is this going to be a new, more nutritious food? Is this something our population needs? No, they're focused on calories and how people can get more food, and which is right. good, but it's not the whole solution. Well, and I also find it interesting that, you know, at least before COVID, there was a shift from from what you just described, this focus on calories and, and yields and production. We were shifting to a more sort of, uh, you know, uh, idea around nutrient density and in improving nutrition and less about calories. And I'm, I'm a little bit concerned that because of COVID-19 and governments being very nervous about the effects on, on their populations and on the economy, that we'll, we'll take a few steps backward and, and not focus as much on nutrient density. Do you, do you have the same concern? Absolutely, Daniel. And uh, this uh, uh, pandemic has really uh, thrown a lot of new issues at us at, a, at an amazingly rapid rate. And uh, uh, it is really a, a huge challenge for all of us, uh, you know, concerned with nutrition uh, to respond to this because uh, I'm concerned that obviously huge resources are going into the uh, identification and treatment of the uh, problem, the health problem. And uh, in that process, uh, I'm hoping that uh, nutrition won't get shortchanged the, because yeah. you just look at, look at the linkages between malnutrition and uh, infection. And we all know that uh, if a population is uh, malnourished, then they get much more uh, susceptible to infection. And this could you know, drive the uh, pandemic and the spread of the pandemic. And uh, on the flip side, um, if the pandemic leads to, uh, you know, uh, 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 shortages in food, yeah, right. you are uh, making the problem worse. So you're virtually setting up a vicious circle and we really need to break that. And the way to break that is through strong action on uh, ensuring good nutrition. Absolutely. One of the ways that you've advocated for that is through fortification, fortifying foods with those essential nutrients that we talked about earlier. And I, I have a quote from you that says, if you invest a dollar in fortification, you get back uh, 30 to $40 in terms of improved human health, better productivity, and mental and physical development in children. So we're talking about, we're not talking about a lot of money here. We're talking about, you know, a few cents, you know, when it, when it comes down to it. You know, companies, businesses have a responsibility, governments, as we, we discussed before. How can we get there, though? How can we make sure that better foods are available to those who need it the most? Yeah, I think uh, there are a couple of uh, uh, things we can definitely do and we, uh, every country should be doing. And uh, we spoke earlier about 
governments working to improve food availability uh, through uh, stronger policies and investments. Uh, uh, governments can support uh, infrastructure, improvement of public transport schemes, sh supply chains to make sure that the good foods reach everyone. Uh, governments can also intervene through fiscal instruments. You know, like mm -hmm. uh, some some countries have taxes on uh, sugar beverages or unhealthy right. foods, and uh, uh, they have bans on the uh, stuff like that, trans fats. Uh, all of these are ways in which they can uh, encourage the push towards healthier foods. And uh, they can also regulate marketing and advertising of food, which is, of course, as you know, a huge problem in many countries. And uh, uh, I think governments should take a much more proactive role through public information campaigns to provide consumers with complete and unbiased information because uh, people are constantly bombarded with private sector advertisements right. uh, and uh, they get influenced by it. I mean, it's not uh, uh, surprising. Uh, there is no counter to that saying that what's good for them. Uh, they're hearing about what could probably be good for the companies, but what is good for them? And uh, uh, that's where we need to strike the balance. But Daniel, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, blame uh, any sector. Sure. I think all sectors need to work together, uh, including the food industry, which is, uh, is a major player. And uh, food industry is involved at every point in the whole supply chain, from farm to fork. And uh, they are very much a partner in all of this. And uh, we have to include them and make them part of the solution. Uh, Absolutely. So, uh, and uh, I've heard a lot of people bashing the private sector. And uh, 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 that's OK. But then uh, they, they are an essential and necessary partner to make all of this happen, to have the food uh, processed, uh, delivered uh, in, in a safe and nutritious form uh, to the consumer. And uh, we have to encourage them to do this. And OK, if there are some who are, uh, you know, uh, promoting unhealthy foods, they, obviously there should be checks and balances. Absolutely. I mean, this villainization of the private sector doesn't get us anywhere if we're not sort of having dialogue with them and encouraging the things that you've proposed in the Global Nutrition Report and your other writing and other speaking, then we're not going to get anywhere. The idea is that we have to break down those silos, get companies to talk to farmers, farmers to talk to nutritionists, get all of these policymakers involved. We need to really have more of a, of a holistic approach to all of this. Right. Absolutely. Sure. I, I, I'm wondering, you know, you, you've developed so many different technologies to improve micronutrients. Could you describe some of those to our viewers? Right. Uh, you know, uh, as you said earlier, Daniel, a lot of my work has been on making sure that people get essential vitamins and minerals, the micronutrients. And uh, we worked for many years to get it into uh, staple foods that are consumed by everybody and you know in the in the developed countries you have a number of foods into which you can uh, slip in nutrients for example all our milk is fortified with vitamin a and d our, uh, our our wheat flour is fortified with iron niacin riboflavin uh, folic acid so our orange our, our fruit juices are fortified so we have a whole range of fortified in fact across uh, a lot of north america and even europe Food fortification has played a major role over the past uh, century to right. correct correct many of these deficiencies. But this hasn't happened in the developing world, which doesn't have such organized uh, food uh, processing and supply chains. And uh, so uh, uh, my focus has been on the poorer countries uh, where the choice of 
food vehicles is fairly limited. You're limited to certain staple foods like uh, cereal foods, wheat flour, rice, or uh, sometimes uh, cooking oils, milk. Um, sure. uh, but uh, a lot of my focus has been on salt. The reason is that salt is consumed by uh, literally everyone in sure. in this in the same quantities. It's not uh, consumed uh, more by the rich uh, or uh, less by the poor. It's fairly uniform. And uh, so we started with iodine and salt. And more recently, we've developed technologies to add iron, folic acid, uh, vitamin B12 and zinc. And uh, a lot of this is now being scaled up and tested in many countries. We are running large uh, uh, programs now in India that are introducing iron and will soon be adding uh, folic acid and B12. That's great. That B12 component, I think, is is a, a really important one for uh, communities who don't consume animal products or can't afford them. That, that essential nutrient really helps with development and, and uh, you know, cognitive function and, and other things. Can you talk about what what happens, especially to women, when they don't get enough iron in their diets? Yes. Uh, you know, a first sign of uh, iron deficiency is uh, uh, obviously the woman uh, becomes anemic because iron deficiency contributes a lot to anemia. And uh, once a woman is uh, uh, iron deficient and or anemic, uh, uh, her um, uh, uh, health is compromised in the sense her energy level is much lower. She's listless. And especially if she's in the childbearing age, um, uh, her her newborn uh, is, is going to be uh, compromised in terms of uh, growth uh, of the newborn, in terms of the de- uh, brain development of the newborn. And uh, uh, ultimately, in terms of uh, productivity, uh, there's a huge impact. Uh, uh, there are many studies that show that uh, anemic women and men uh, are... Uh, uh, 20% less productive, uh, you know, in terms of just physical uh, uh, productivity is much lower. And uh, there's been a lot of recent evidence to show that iron deficiency has a huge impact on cognitive development, especially in children. Absolutely. So all of these, you know, whether it's iron, folic acid, zinc, B12, all of these, these, um, uh, you know, this, these lack of, of micronutrients in people's diet, it's often called hidden hunger. But as you just pointed out, it has such a huge sort of personal toll on people, you know, on, on you know, their human development, how they can function in the world. And it has a, a, a significant economic toll, as you described before, on, on how countries develop. And so if we don't figure this out, you know, and you We'll have generations of people who continue to be stunted or, you know, uh, in some way, they will not be reaching their full potential. Right. Absolutely. And uh, uh, needless to say, the COVID pandemic has now really uh, exacerbated that problem because, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, as you said, there's already a huge impact of these problems um, uh, on populations. And, uh, the world has been making slow and steady progress over the past 20, 30 years. Uh, there is a real risk now that this COVID pandemic could set back a lot of those gains. And uh, yeah. that's that's the real concern that uh, not only will we we'll be not uh, be improving, we'll actually be slipping back. And uh, uh, that's the real concern. Uh, but on the flip side, Daniel, I'm also uh, 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 an optimist that says that we need to learn from the challenges of COVID 
and turn them into opportunities. And uh, you've been talking and speaking a lot of this. I think this is giving us an opportunity to reshape our food systems. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and so that, uh, and we do it comprehensively now that addresses uh, some of the uh, uh, health issues, uh, but also addresses uh, a lot of the other nutrition issues as well. And uh, uh, I, I'm hoping that the world will uh, uh, pay much more attention uh, to, uh, to nutrition and the importance of nutrition um, as we move forward and beyond the, the epidemic and uh, get life back to uh, some level of normalcy. Yeah, I mean, we're learning so much from COVID. While it is a terrible tragedy, there's so much to be learned from this. I think it's also a time where researchers like yourself can be reflective and sort of plan for what the, the you know, that transformation, that revolutionizing of the food system will look like, you know, post-COVID. There is so much opportunity there. I'm wondering, you know, uh, as the final question, what you're most excited about. I mean, you work so hard on the Global Nutrition Report. There are so many, you know, interesting facts in there. What, mo- what most excites you about the next 10 years of this kind of work on, on improving micronutrient deficiencies? Uh, I think uh, there's much more awareness now at all levels, at the level of governments, at the level of the private sector, uh, uh, and at the level of civil society. I think civil society is also playing a huge role uh, in in getting the players together. And uh, uh, I'm also excited with the concept that I don't want people to think that nutrition is something that should be dealt with separately. It should be uh, built into everything that we do, you know, whether it's food or it's health or uh, nutrition has, has to become uh, uh, um, an integral component of all of that and uh, good nutrition. And, you know, every, even everyday people are talking about it. They Even in COVID, they say, should I be taking more vitamin D? Should I have zinc? Uh, so yeah. people realize that there are all these connections. Uh, uh, and uh, the more uh, that realization comes in people and there's a demand created for better nutrition, uh, uh, and a lot of it is contributed by better food. Uh, uh, so I'm optimistic that that will drive uh, both governments and the private sector uh, to move towards reshaping the food system in a way that, you know, serves uh, people much better. Absolutely. And I love that you mentioned civil society and their role in all this, whether it's creating awareness or education or, you know, demanding that, you know, changes be made. Uh, to find out more uh, about the Global Nutrition Report, our, our listeners can go to globalnutritionreport.org. Um, they can go to the University of Toronto Center for Global Engineering to find out more information about you. Um, they can also uh, follow the report on Twitter at GN Report and the University of Toronto at, at U of, of T. So any other websites or handles you want to get out, give out, Dr. Manar? I have my own Twitter uh, account, MGV uh, Manar. Uh, uh, and that uh, I'm, I'm, I tweet a number or I retweet a number of uh, uh, news items. And every day now we hear of a lot of uh, new developments and, uh, you know, uh, stories that we'd like to share. And uh, I would encourage people to uh, keep track of several of these stories because they have an importance uh, for us as communities and countries, but also as individually. So all of us need to have a, a responsibility to be aware of everything that's going on and uh, take uh, decisions. Absolutely. And we'll have those um, websites and handles available on uh, foodtank.com as well as our social media. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Menar, for joining us today. It was a true honor to to see you, and I hope we get to meet in person one day. Uh, A reminder that we'll also be having uh, our next episode with Dr. William Dietz of the George Washington University Sumner uh, and Redstone Global Center for Prevention and Wellness, and he'll be talking about obesity. Thank you again, Dr. Benar. Please stay well. Pleasure. You too. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to Food Talk with Danny Nuremberg. Please rate, review, subscribe, and share the podcast. Make sure to return to foodtank.com every day for original reporting and analysis on the most pressing issues impacting our food system.